Five years ago, I made a terrible decision. My wife, Holly, and I were watching The Biggest Loser on TV. You know that reality show where it feels a little better to eat that gallon of Bluebell while you're watching it? And I was watching the show, and in the midst of this, it came that time for them to run their race. I don't know if most seasons there's either a half marathon or a marathon that comes along. And uh, as we were watching that, Holly said those famous last words. Well, if they can do it, we can do it. So we decided we were going to run a marathon. This was 2010. And so the first thing we went and did was we went to the store and we bought running shoes, you know, the the right kind that fits the the way your foot runs, and and then running clothes. And we didn't realize that a free sport was going to cost that much, but it does if you've gotten into that. And we went up to the track, and, and, and all of a sudden we started running. And we thought, well, we'll run a mile this first time and see how that goes. And so we ran four times around the track, and we were exhausted, wondering how in the world we would do 26 of these. And uh, I, you know, I remember getting to the and, and don't judge us, by the way. We were at a mile high. This was in Denver, okay? So there's not as much air up there, right? But there's still this question of how are we going to pull this off? But it's amazing what the human body can do. Uh, in fact, Holly had some ideas about what the human body could do. Uh, she ended up not running that year because she got pregnant, which I think was by design to make me run and keep the commitment that she couldn't keep that year. But we trained at elevation thinking, well, you know, if we train at elevation, we'll go down and run the Dallas White Rock Marathon and, and, and it'll go well, right? And so I remember taking a training run in September around White Rock Lake, a, a little past one loop around at the time. That was what I was building up at that point. And, and, and I realized actually the humidity is worse than the elevation. But by the end of that time, I ended up running in 2010. And, and, and I had these goals for what I wanted to do. I wanted to run under five hours, which would about put me you know, right behind them closing down the race course at that point. I realized that the you know, winners would beat me by more than half of, you know, would get it done in less than half of my time. But I wanted to finish, and I had this goal of five hours that I wanted to do. And in the midst of that, I got to know this running trail very well in Denver. It was called the Highline Canal Trail. And if you're in Denver, I would suggest you check this trail out. It actually goes about 66 miles, and they have a race every year uh, where people try to run the whole thing. Uh, which is pretty amazing if you think about that, these ultra marathoners. It's amazing. But I would run that trail, and it was so much better than the concrete because, you know, my you know, shins and shin splints. It was just so good because it was a crushed rock trail. There was shade. It was a trail I grew to love. And it was a trail that I knew so well. I knew that there were markers that would, you know, you know I'd, I'd see this house, and that would be this far that I'd run, and that was how much I had to go. And so uh, along the way, you know, I bought a, a watch that would allow me to kind of check my, my pace and all that kind of thing. And what I realized over time and checking with the GPS uh, device at one time was that uh, my watch wasn't correct. So I'd spent more money on something that didn't really work. But along the trail, I found these mile markers and they were spot on with the GPS. And these mile markers, kind of like, th- this is actually that trail in Denver that's a, a little a part of it. 
Those mile markers along the way were reminders of how far I was, had come and how long I would go. And I got to tell you, there's no feeling like being on a long run, the 20-mile run that you do before the race, and being 10 miles away from your car knowing you've got to get back to your car. Nothing more frightening and exhilarating at the same time as this. And I got to know this trail, and as I was thinking about this stage of where our church is, I started to think that metaphor of these milestones, these markers along the journey, that our life is a race, as Paul talks about. It's a marathon of sorts. But there are these markers along the way that help us track our progress, whether we're in the first half of life or we're in the second half of life, a sermon I'll preach in a couple of weeks. I want to focus this morning on the first half of life, the first part of the race. But these markers are very significant. And this morning is one of those markers. It's Mother's Day. And Mother's Day uh, ends up being one of those in different ways. Next week is going to be Family Dedication Sunday where we celebrate the children that have been born uh, in this church. And we look forward to that and our covenanting together to raise as a family these children to know Jesus. A couple of weeks from then we'll have Senior Sunday where we'll celebrate the journey that many of our students have been on all the way through school uh, to entering into the job force or entering, in, entering into further education. So this is a month where we're focused on some markers, some key events in our life. I thought, you know, that's, that would be a great series to talk about, is to think about our life and the milestones that come along the way. So this morning is Mother's Day, of course. And there's kind of different milestones in different stages of life that Mother's Day reminds us of. For instance, milestone one, I remember as a child, just like Scott was describing earlier, you know, giving gifts to my mom, trying to honor my mom in some way. And I remember trying to come up with something neat. And, and, and these days, I don't know if you've seen this. If, you, if you've got a preschooler, you've probably seen this. They, they do these questionnaires with parents that they bring home. And it seems like a cute idea until you actually see what they put down, right? Like, like how much it was, does, does dad weigh? This was like for my birthday or something. It said like 450 pounds. I was like, seriously? Come on. Got to teach our kids something. But mom will get these or they'll get these cute gifts and they love that kind of thing. But as the milestones change, then eventually you're not giving gifts to mom. Eventually you become a mom or you're a dad who gets to celebrate Father's Day and receive these gifts. But there's an elephant in the room on mornings like Mother's Day that I think we need to address this morning. And that is that sometimes milestone two doesn't, doesn't come along like we expect it would. Sometimes we don't get to celebrate the children that we long to have because of um, issues that come up in life because of uh, maybe being single longer than we'd imagined at one point, or, or, or maybe it's infertility that a couple struggles with, or maybe it's miscarriages. Maybe there were some in the crowd this morning that, that have lost a child in the last year, or you've had children maybe that have grown up and they're estranged from you. So a morning like this becomes a very difficult morning, doesn't it, for some of us? And I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that in a room this morning is we don't want to not celebrate moms. We want to celebrate that. But we also want to do that within the context of a community that finds a morning like this to be very hard in many ways. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, that leads me to another milestone uh, that, that we, need to, we need to learn to celebrate. We need to learn to mourn with one another as well on a morning like today. But that takes me to the third milestone, and that is uh, that some of us, this becomes a hard morning because we have moms who passed away. Some of us in this room, this is the first year we haven't been able to call mom on Mother's Day. That's really difficult. That's really hard, isn't it? And I know those of you who are in that position, you'd, you'd encourage the rest of us this morning to make sure and call mom today. 
Because you don't get that opportunity, and you would have anything to have that call with mom. So this becomes a difficult moment, but also the milestones continue. And for some of us, we get the joy of becoming grandparents and getting to celebrate Mother's Day and seeing that through our children's eyes that are new moms in that way. So Mother's Day becomes this kind of milestone marker. And I came came across uh, a blog this week that I thought would be really helpful uh, to share with you this morning as we come together from these different places. The words that uh, she put to paper, I thought, or to website, I guess, were really helpful. Let me read this. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. And forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance from your children, we sit with you. To those who've lost their mothers this year, We grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nest in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those of you who are pregnant with new life, both expecting and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst this morning. We remember you all. Let's pray together. God, I, I ask this morning, wherever we find ourselves, that we can find this to be a time that would move us forward in our journey with you. God, I thank you for a community that celebrates mothers. So many of us have that experience of having parents that we are grateful for. We're grateful for the moms in this place, God, and all that they do. And yet, God, this is a difficult morning, and so we stand in the midst of this. This is what church is. This is what a community does together, God, is learns to walk beside each other, acknowledging the pain and the joy of different stages and places of life. And so, God, would you bring comfort to those who mourn this morning? God, this morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives, God. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Over the next few weeks, as I said earlier, we're going to talk about milestones in our life. And this morning, I want to talk about the first half of life. And this morning, I'm not going to define what the first half of life is for you, for it is Mother's Day, and that would be dangerous. 
you make that decision, right? I mean, a good way to think about that might be, are you closer to death or are you closer to birth? Um, and, and there are people who live to 110, so, you know, set that up as you wish. But this isn't really about sequential order or a number of years. The truth is that first half of life and second half of life is not based on a number. It's based on experience and maturity and, and things that we all go through. So there's some in this crowd who may be in their 20s. And, and because of life that's been thrown at you in certain ways, you may find yourself in a second half of life. And, and there are others of you that may find yourself uh, aged at a different pace. And maybe you feel like you're in the first half of life. You're just experiencing the vigor and life of that. Next, in a couple of weeks, I'll come back and talk about the second half of life. I think it's important to reframe this in ways different from our culture. I think there's so much that the second half of life ought to add But we can't get to that without talking the first. And so I want to talk about that today. You know, we live in a culture where kids are so fast to grow up. They're in a hurry to grow up, aren't they? I mean, tell tell a young teenage girl or boy just to, you know, enjoy life as it is. It's so hard to do because everything in culture is rushing us to grow up. But it's funny, you get to a point also in life, and I don't know where that stage was for you, that you look back and think, man, I wish I could just stop time right now. I wish I could go back to a season, or maybe you don't at all. Maybe those seasons aren't things to go back to for you. So we, we have this hurry up and rush, and then we get to a place where we feel like life has passed us by in some ways. And, and I think Scripture calls on us to, to view life in a very different way than our culture asks us to. And I think one of the disciplines that we need to create in the first half of life especially, maybe all of life, is a, a discipline of pacing ourselves as we go through life. It's not rushing through like culture pushes us to do so often. And if this was true for me as I was planning for my marathon. Pace is everything when it comes to it. Like you've got to know what your target time is. You've got to know what you're able to do. And then you've got to be able to pace yourself. And one of the most important rules, if, if that was your New Year's resolution this year, let me just give you a rule for marathon racing. One of the most important rules is don't run as fast as everyone else does at the starting line. Because, man, you train this whole time, the music's thumping, the, the crowd's cheering, you're about to step across that line, and everybody's about to press the button on their watch, about to go 26 miles, and, and, and everybody just rushes out of the gate. And, and I was told by someone who'd already been down that journey, don't do it. <laughs> Pace yourself from the start because you'll wear yourself out early and you won't be able to finish the way that you want to. I had a goal, as I told you, five hours was my goal. And in order to pull that off, I had to have a pace of 11 and a half minutes per mile, which doesn't sound like much when you're running your 5K, but when you're thinking about that kind of race, that was a pretty big goal for me. And I did it. I finished in four hours and 37 minutes and 52 seconds. I still remember it, right? And I was proud of that until I looked at a list of celebrities and how fast they'd run their races, and I realized that Oprah beat me. And so I decided I've got to race a second marathon. It's going to be the Beat Oprah Marathon. Her time was 4.29, so not that much faster. So it was a good push for me to do. Now, now in order to pull off a 4.29 marathon, I had to go a little faster, right? It was more like a 10.5 type pace, a little faster than that. So I had to train a little differently. I had to up my intervals. I had to be ready for this because I wasn't going to let her beat me again. And guess what? She beat me again. It was 2012, and if any of you were racing that year in the race, you know it was a hot year. Humidity was up. The Africans were having trouble that year, actually. And so I I didn't feel so bad about that, but I'm going to go back. I've got an effort to do so. In fact, I had a guy come up to me this morning who said he ran it at 45 and beat me, and I'm like, all right, you're on my list too. i got to beat. Part of marathoning is not really the goals that you have. The, The main goal is to finish, right? 
to realize that this is the only place, the only athletic competition you can really think of where you can race against the professionals, know you're not going to win, and kind of get the same medal, the same prize, right? The fact that you actually finished and completed something you were trying to race. And when I think about characters in Scripture, and I think about the pacing that's important in a race, I think about life and how many of these characters failed to pace themselves the way they should have. In fact, the story this morning I thought of and I wanted to think about this week was the story of Moses. If you have your Bibles, open to Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. And it's interesting how Scripture starts this verse as we talk about first half and second half of life. Exodus 2 verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, interesting language, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. If you're not familiar with the Exodus story, the people of Israel have been in bondage for 400 years. God's been silent much of that time. But here's Moses, a a boy who's born as no ordinary child, as Scripture tells us. And he's born, and part of his commissioning, part of his, what God's going to call him to do is to be the leader who frees his people from bondage. And he grows up in the house of Egypt, but finally he has compassion, and he sees this one who's being mistreated, and he steps up, and it says after he'd grown up, he, he actually murders this Egyptian trying to in some way do something. And actually Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7, fills us in more on the details. I talked about this a few months ago in the Uncut series, but I want to go there again. Acts Chapter 7, Stephen tells the story of of the Old Testament, of God's history with his people. And this is what he says about that same event that we read in Exodus chapter 2. It's Acts chapter 7, verse 23. It says, when Moses was 40 years old. So if you're wondering when you're a grown-up, Scripture says 40, based on Exodus and this, right? Anyway, 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Now listen to verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. So Moses has finally grown up. He's finally to the point that he thinks maybe I'm the leader who's going to lead these people out of bondage. He's on his timeline and he's got his own pace. The problem is his pace wasn't God's pace. God hadn't called him on this timeline to go and free the people. And so he starts trying to bring this revolution, hoping the people would realize that freedom is possible and they don't follow him. What do they say? Are you going to kill us like you killed him? Like they don't follow him. They're not ready. And, and this is what I find in my life is there are times where I step up when I'm ready on my timeline and it's just not God's timeline. And it never works out when that happens. Have you been there before? If you think you're ready to do something, God's called you to do something, what you realize was that wasn't God who was speaking because it didn't work out on the, on the timeline you had expected. And that's what Moses faces. Moses didn't pace himself on God's timeline. He let out, but God wasn't ready for this leading. And, and Moses wasn't ready for it most of all, maybe. So perhaps you've been there. And I think I know why we don't pace ourselves, especially in the first half of life. I think I know why we don't pace ourselves. Whether you're a teenager who can't wait to graduate and and leave home, or you're a parent who's happy to see your kids leave home, or whether you're waiting for a promotion or you're just trying to find a job, whether whether you're waiting for the right one or, 
or maybe you're just waiting for that family and that child you'd hoped you'd have already. Part of what determines our pace, our desire for the speed and the timeline in our lives, part of what that comes down to is our identity. Our identity is a huge part of it. If, if you're not secure in your identity in God, it's amazing how fast we try to make things happen because our identity is found someplace else. I would suggest that our frantic pace is tied to our search for identity in the first half of life. In other words, you cannot slow down your pace. You're trying to make it happen until you finally find an identity that is secure in God. I mean, try telling a teenage girl not to hurry and grow up, right? Or or try telling a man or woman who's climbing the corporate ladder, hey, enjoy this time in the cubicle. It's really hard to do that when you're ready to see the next step happen. Try telling a young single girl to enjoy the single life because this will never come around again. See, people in the first half of life have a very difficult time hearing that kind of advice because we want to charge forward and we want to find the next stage. And what we find is we do this over and over again and we miss these moments that God had all along the way. There could have been moments of joy if we'd enjoyed them rather than trying to brush right past them. Any amens from the second half? Have you been there? Now, I can't speak to this for women. I can speak to this from my experience. Maybe this is true uh, in, in other, uh, from, as a woman as well. But for men, I think we want to be heroes. That's the first stage of life journey. We want to be heroes. And we try to do that in several ways. We try to find our identity in, in different places. Maybe it's in work that we try to climb that ladder and try to find success and meaning and self-worth in our career in some way. For others, it was on the athletic field that we found our identity and we tried to, uh, to do that. Or maybe we tried to build the perfect body and, and perfect our, our image in that way to try to find our identity and what we look like. Or maybe it was in finding that perfect woman. Or maybe it was in trying to fulfill sexual desire, this emptiness in our lives. I don't know what it was for you, but I think we all have this desire, this innate piece of us that wants to be the hero, that wants to be remembered, that wants to make a difference and a significance. And I have a feeling women feel the same way, and it may look a little different. It may look the same. Maybe it is in relationships. Maybe it is in finding that person that you're going to do life with. Or maybe it is in education or in rising up that ladder and trying to, to show your meaning through your work. Or maybe, maybe it's through that perfect appearance. I think in American culture, that's so much the drive for women that's being pushed over and over again is you've got to look just right in order to have meaning and significance. But here are the three questions that I want to leave with you that I think are, are the, the questions that, that kind of drive our, our search, our drive for identity in the first half of life. The first is, what makes me significant? What makes me significant? What is it in my life that can make me feel like I'm going to make a difference, that I'll be remembered far after my life is gone? What am I going to be remembered for? What am I going to be known as significant because of? Second question that often drives us there, how can I support myself? How can I find security? How can I make a living? How can I make sure that I have enough so I can go on this journey and complete this journey? So we try to find our security, our identity, and our finances or supporting ourselves. And the third question for the hero is, who's going to go with me? Who's that person who's going to join me on this heroic journey? Maybe that's a family or maybe that's a spouse or maybe that's a close friend or a business partner. Who's going to join me on this heroic mission that I have? And to me, this isn't just American culture. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. 
In fact, I want to go back there. I've read this to you before, but I I think Genesis 1 through 3 is one of the most foundational texts for us to understand our life and God's big story. God gives Adam and Eve an identity, and that identity is found as we read in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what God says from the very start is I've created you and I've put my image on you. You are created in the image of God. Your first and foremost identity is you are a child of God. You are the beloved of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. That is who you are. That is the identity that God gives to us. But as the story goes on in Genesis chapter 3, what we find out is that identity was not enough for Adam and Eve. So we read on in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The only reason that the serpent can tempt Eve in this scene is because her identity is not secure in where God established it. Like if she's secure in her identity as a child of God, there's nothing more that's needed. Nothing's going to tempt her or interest her beyond that. But when when the serpent comes and says, hey, there's more than what God's given you. He's, He's hiding something. All of a sudden it becomes attractive in ways it never would have before. You see, sin is a result of finding our identity in something other than our identity that's been given to us as a child of God. And when that is secure, sin's not an issue. But every time we find sin to be a temptation or a problem in our lives, it's because we've misplaced our identity someplace else other than where God placed it. Sin is trying to find our identity in somewhere else other than than in God. As a son of God, as a daughter of God. And what's the consequence, the result of that? We read that in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized they were naked, And they began to cover themselves. And this is what I would suggest. There's several ways to read that passage. But one of the ways I like and I think is helpful for this conversation this morning is when we don't place our identity in Christ, we're tempted to go and do something, to be a part of something else like the serpent tempts Eve. All of a sudden we we lose our identity where it was supposed to be. And then we realize that we're naked. That our identity is not what it once was. And what do we do when we don't have an identity, the one God's given to us? We begin to cover that up with different identities. And this is what the the journey uh, of the first half of life is all about. The first half of life is a journey of trying to find our identity in every place other than the place it should be. So we put on this identity and we try it out and 
And either it works or it doesn't work for a season for us. And then we try on this identity. And part of our journey of life growing up is just this process of trying these other things, of covering ourselves, not with leaves, but with other identities, trying to find something that God has already given to us. The truth is we've all covered our nakedness. We've all covered this place that that is not identified with God as it should be, and we try to cover it with things that cannot possibly cover it. And here's the deal. All of those identities that we try to cover up with, they will eventually fail us. We think that there may be the ticket to an identity, a self-worth that's going to hold us together, but what we find with every one of these we put on is it cannot possibly give me what's needed by what God has already given to us just by being created in His image. So we try them on, and then we try the next thing, and we try the next thing, and along the way, we begin to realize that, man, I, I can't find it. Again, can I hear any amens from second half of life people? We try these things on and they just don't work. And it becomes this surge that we wonder, will it ever come together? Will we ever find the self-worth and identity that we need? Well, it's different things for different ones of us. But how many of you have experienced a deep failing or a deep suffering in your life at some point? I'm asking for a raising of hands. How many of you have experienced that at some point? A, a failing, a suffering. A... And when you get to that place... You can turn in one of two directions. You can either cover up with something else or you can return to that identity that's already been given to you in God, in Christ Jesus. And usually in the first half of life, it's not just a one-time thing. It's different things. And some of you may be in a different place. You may say, I haven't failed. Life's been, I'm a, everything I touch seems to just kind of find success. And I think what happens along those lines is sometimes we don't find failure, but what we find is the success that we wanted. We get to the top of the ladder we were climbing that we thought was going to lead to someplace, and we get to the top and realize, well, this just doesn't give me the self-worth I thought I was going to get at the end of it. This doesn't bring the success or the feeling of accomplishment that I thought it would. And so even success after success after success leaves us in a place that we wonder, is this all there is? And that can lead us to all kinds of things, to covering up again. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is failures don't necessarily mean that we're off track or that we'll never return to the path. Failures are often a part of our spiritual journey of growth. Sometimes we see them as if, boy, we've gone off the path and I wonder what if God's pleased with me or I wonder if he'll ever accept me back. And the truth is, many of us have found failure to be the very place where we return back to the path that God was guiding us on all along. And part of the first half of life is not just seeing failure as this thing that we need to step away from and perfection's where we get to, but it's realizing that every failure provides a chance for us to see God more clearly than we did before. Because when we reject that idolatry, when we reject that identity, all of a sudden God comes alive in so many new ways. Because every good story has conflict, doesn't it? Every movie that you love to go see, it's good because it has a conflict that's somehow resolved or worked through or or stretches us to see the world in new ways. You cannot have a good story without a good conflict. And so for us to pretend that in our own lives that that, that conflict may be something we don't have to walk through is to misunderstand the way story is told and the way God calls his people back. The Bible is full of conflict, but it's also full of a story where God redeems that conflict and he has a good end that he's bringing us toward. So either we fail and we We move into a stage, and I'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, about second half of life, that we move toward midlife crisis. And that that is really what that is, is that's trying to look at our lives and realizing we don't have much time ahead. 
we haven't accomplished what we wanted to, so maybe we need to try a new route that will get us that. It's just covering up just like we've done all the first half of life. But at some point, hopefully we get to a place where we return back to the path and God is able to use those crises, those, those moments, those sufferings to establish our identity in Him first and foremost. Remember, Moses didn't do his most important ministry until he was 80 years old. It wasn't until he'd gone through this first half of life and through a wilderness wandering of his own that he was able to take Israel through their own wilderness wandering. It took failure for Moses to succeed. So let me close with this. If you're in the first half of life, and remember, this is not a number, okay? I mean, there, there are people who are, when Holly started dating me, we were 16 years old. She probably would have told you that I was in the second half of life. I've always been an old man. I always sat at the adult table. I, was all, I, I, never, really, I, I never wanted to be a youth minister because I didn't connect. I've always been. So there are some people, uh, and, and I'm not saying that about myself. I'm still in the first stage of life in so many respects, I think. But, but there are some people that actually progress or mature faster, sometimes because they've gone through suffering that forced them to get there. I mean, some of you ended up being parents for siblings that you should have never been parents for. That led you on a journey that you had to mature to a new place because people were demanding or depending on you for that. So you've been through really hard things. And sometimes, and some of us may be older and we're still enjoying that first half of life. And, and, and there's still a, this vigor to life that we're still trying to figure things out. So it's not a number. But, but if you're in the first half of life, this, this sermon is not trying to get you to grow up faster. It's not saying if you could just mature past that. No, actually, this is a part of your journey, and failure and these identity searches are actually a part of God's journey toward him. And if I could say anything else this morning, or you would hear anything, I hope it would be this. Sometimes the church has said you have to get everything together before you come and be a part of us. I think there are a lot of people that are not in church this morning because they feel that's the case. They feel the judgment of Christians. Or maybe it's just a misnomer. They think this is a place where perfect people come together, which if they just show up, they know that wasn't the case, right? But we, we come together here and we think that, oh, if we fail, this is not the place for us. What if church was the very place people came when they failed? What if we acknowledge that failure is actually a part of spiritual growth? It's not a diversion from it. So when you fail, come here because we're all failures and we're trying to find our, state, our life on the other side of those failures knowing that more failures are ahead, but we're learning along the way. And so if you've got sin that's a part of your life, come join us. We all do. But we've got to transform. And if we don't transform our sin or our identity struggles, we will always transmit those struggles. So we need to find transformation in the church and small groups and doing life together with community. That's how we transform them. Because if you don't transform it, you will pass it on. That always happens in our lives if we're not careful. But I do want to offer one warning to those of those you in the first half of life. This is to myself as well. That as you try on these identities, never stake all of your self-worth on any one of them. Because all of this idolatry and all this effort to find our life outside of God, it can never bear the weight that we try to hold on in. We'll always miserably fail. And idols never fail to fail. And we think the next one might be the one that will allow us to have our self-worth. I can tell you from experience already, it's not happened in my life that way. And failure has been a path forward for me to see that God can use that and transform it to help others along the way. In a couple of weeks, I'm excited to share the second part of this. And I'm going to have Keith Maloney with me because I couldn't dare speak into the second half of life myself right now. 
But I hope I've, I've got some thoughts and some things that have made you think this morning. And I, I hope we can redeem the second half of life because our culture wants to throw the second half of life away and say it's over after the first half. We are first half of life culture. It values everything about the first search. But the church needs to be a church that values the second half of life because it's there that we help others along their journeys and help them see that failure is not the end. It's actually where the journey starts in a new way. So I hope this is a message of hope to you wherever you find yourself. If you're in the first half, don't rush it. Pace yourself. It's okay. I'm in that stage right now still trying to figure things out, still trying to put on these identities. But again, learning through all of that, that all of those failures are pointing me on this path where we can trust the Lord in all our hearts, lean not on our own understandings, but in all our, uh, his ways. He's going to direct our paths. We want to be on that path. It's just sometimes it takes a diversion from it to get back on it. So wherever you find yourself today, now you feel blessed to know you're a part of a community with a lot of failures. But God's partnering with all of us, and there are a lot of people that have been down the path. Maybe if you're running down that path and you're at about mile seven, <laughs> you've finally gotten up to that, maybe you need to find someone on the second half of that life to come and join you and be a running partner. So maybe that's what you need to seek out today is to find that person who would be that running partner for you who knows who, what's around the next bend. Let's pray together as we close our time. God, I thank you so much for the way you've designed life, for the way that you have honored life, that you've brought life to us, God. All things are yours. We learned about that recently. And one day you're going to restore all things. This morning, God, uh, some of us are in the first half of life, and, and boy, we've been down some paths, and we're still trying to figure it out, God. And God, I pray that we would find people who are in the second half of life, who've journeyed down that, who have failed, who can express that and share that. We can share life with them, and they can give us hope about the future. God, I pray for those who are in the second half of life this morning. God, I thank you for what you brought them through. I thank you for the wisdom they have to offer, for the ways that they are not done with their life. In some ways, they're just coming to a place that they get to bless the rest of us in, in ways that we can't possibly imagine blessing others as we're so caught up in ourselves in so many times in this first stage. So God, this morning, would you bring this church together? Would you allow us to continue to be diverse and to love one another, even in our diversity? Because it is only in diversity, it is only in coming together from these diverse backgrounds. That's what the kingdom of God is, and we are not the kingdom. We don't express it when we, when we divide into so many ways that we divide. So God, bring those who we don't have experience of life with, would you bring them to us so that we can learn from them, God? Would you help us to love one another through the difficulty of what it means to be church? God, we love you and we thank you so much for the story of Moses, for the story of creation, that our image is, we are made in your image. And our identity is secure. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. We'll be standing now for our benediction. I want to bless those of you who are on mile four and seven and ten right now. Just kind of finding your way, trying to figure out what life looks like. I'm on the same path you are. I've not gotten to the second half. May we be a people who are humble enough to pace ourselves, to know that the next thing around the corner won't fill us up like we expect it to. Would we be humble enough to, to find partners from the second half of life and, and run with them? May those of you in the second half of life, would you be willing to run with us? Would you be patient with us? Because others have been patient with you. May we love God. May we love people. And may we serve others. Go in peace.